Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And today, we're going to talk about, well, I've got a status report on most of the modern-day great powers. We'll be talking about the century-long 2020 election in the United States, we have a constitutional amendment in Hungary, who I've previously stated I believe is going to be a mid-century power, and this could help them get there. Uh, we're going to be talking about China's new capital city that they've already begun building now, and India's efforts to solidify its position as a regional power in Southeast Asia. All that and more, coming up. start today's rapid fire news it's gonna be short because well we have a pretty beefy segment today i'll see if i can't keep it under an hour but uh we have australia has refused a travel ban on the united kingdom uh this comes in light as the european union is imposing a travel ban on the united kingdom australia has refused uh kanzuk question mark question mark question mark uh australia has also made an appeal to the World Trade Organization over the Chinese embargo of Australian barley. Uh, we'll be talking more about the Chinese later, and particularly the economics, uh, the economic angle the Chinese are taking in their region. Russia is set to put 13 ICBM launchers on combat alert next year, uh, and the Russian Air Force is set to receive 22 Su-57 planes by late 2024. 78 by 2028. So they're moving pretty slowly with that. Uh, meanwhile, in Russia's front yard, Belarus uh, has a new nuclear power plant that is to be connected to the power grid, actually, later today, if everything goes smoothly. And OPEC Plus agrees to production cuts to boost oil prices. Russia is not likely to participate. America, as a major oil producer and non-OPEC member, is also likely to benefit from the rise in prices. So, Russia's gonna make off like a bandit, America's gonna make off like a bandit, and OPEC, everyone that's, uh, except for Arabia, is gonna get, uh, probably stomped a little bit. Uh, the cuts to production-wise, anyway. The money they'll probably use to compensate the laid-off workers, but... Arabia can just ramp up production. It's really easy for them to do. But the countries that aren't cutting production are going to disproportionately benefit. So, America and Russia. And Norway. But, on to the meat. Nice and early. So, we'll start with America. Uh, the United States has begun to sanction Turkey. Another rising power. We'll see if they break into the great power status later on this century. But, um... The U.S. has begun to sanction Turkey with a deliberate target being Turkey's military industry. Now, Turkey is making their own drones, although they get the parts for those drones from other countries, and they're probably aiming to make the parts themselves and be self-sufficient with their military equipment like France, United States, and Russia. And if they are able to achieve that uh, independence of industry, 
that could make them that much more potent in their region, especially with them embracing fundamental newness of something like drones. Because it's not just like the Reaper and Predator drone that the United States has and the soon-to-be-emerging B-21 bomber drone, but they have like smaller kamikaze drones is what the Turkey, the Turkish military is using. So if they're able to make those entirely independent of the outside uh, ecosystem, that could make them a lethal force in their region. Uh, and this embargo, well, not the embargo, this sanction that the U.S. is putting on Turkey could push them towards that because they won't really have any option other than to do that. So we'll see where Turkey goes from here. Their, their, their currency is in a bit of a free fall right now. So they're probably struggling economically. And I guess the Americans don't want to necessarily kill Turkey because if they wanted to do that, you would target their currency and make it fall faster. But it's a noticeable step in a different direction as the Trump administration has previously been um, trying to resist sanctions. Um, the Greeks have been calling for sanctions. Cyprus, uh, the non-occupied section of Cyprus, has been calling for sanctions against Turkey. France was calling for sanctions against Turkey. But the EU didn't go through with that. They instead chose sanctions on Belarus who the EU really has nothing to do with. Um, we'll get into the EU later on, but I thought that this was pretty important as it also marked the continuation of America pulling back because Turkey is a NATO member. It has the largest army outside of the United States. Now, not necessarily the second best quality army, but the largest, the second largest to the United States in NATO. So this marks kind of, it could mark kind of the unofficial end to NATO. Uh, any number of other events could have marked that as well, but this seems pretty significant as the U.S. and Turkey are drifting apart. Now, the United States, while we're still here, the U.S. Supreme Court has rejected a challenge uh, from one of the circuit courts, I believe the one that encompasses Cal the Pacific states, um, one of the circuit courts tried to challenge Trump's effort to keep illegal immigrants from being counted during the congressional apportionment, and that's where people are counted in, uh, in the states, and the state gets representation in the House of Representatives based off their population, and what Trump wanted to do was keep illegal immigrants from being counted. Now, States, uh, oh, the U.S. Supreme Court in a 6-3 decision blocked that challenge, meaning Trump's effort will go through. So what that means, moving forward, is that states who have large populations of illegal immigrants are likely to lose seats in the House of Representatives. And given the, break, the partisan breakdown on uh, immigration, uh, the Democrats, the states run by them, namely California and New York, they're going to lose seats. It's going to heavily impact them way more than Republicans. Um, Republicans who also have control over more of the state legislatures, so each state has a miniature version of the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives in them, so 
those are the state legislatures and the Republicans control more of those than the Democrats. Um, we're also going, the, the, the Republicans are also going to have an advantage moving forward due to redistricting uh, and the redraw, which is the redrawing of districts based off of where people live. And it's probably likely going to favor the Republicans. Both of those, when you combine that with the very slim majority that the Democrats hold in the House of Representatives, it could cost them that majority just next year when the districts start getting... Actually, I think the districts are going to start getting redrawn next year because this year is a census year and they do census every 10 years, so it makes sense if they start redrawing the districts next year. I'll have to look into that. I'll probably give an update later or maybe I could just stop recording and do the update right now but that <laughs> but actually I think I'll do that some later point in the episode but this is probably going to cost the democrats the hold of the house they're probably going to lose the house the republicans have already have 50 seats in the senate and their democrats have 48 which means there are two seats left for election and those are the runoffs in Georgia. Now, that's not looking great for the Democrats either because both the polls for both races are favoring the Republican candidate. Uh, and specifically, the candidate with the more outspoken support of the president has a greater lead. Uh, their, her lead is seven points and the other guy's lead is only by three. So assuming turnout is... Uh, roughly parallel to what these polls are saying. We know we can't really trust polls anymore. Assuming turnout is even close to what these polls are saying, the Republicans are going to sweep and have a 52-seat majority in the Senate, despite having had more seats up for grabs this time around. They will maintain the Senate if they win just one of these races. And even if they didn't, if the president maintained, well, the presidency with his challenges to the election, that would make Pence the tiebreaker in any 50-50 split, meaning the Republicans would hold the Senate. Uh, speaking of the president, um, let's see here, where, where is it, where is it? The Republican control, oh yeah, I brought up that the Republicans had control over a greater number of state legislatures, specifically 31 to the Democrat 19 uh, and that could also spell victory for President Trump if the election is disputed still in January, which the president seems like he's going to maintain this dispute right up until the very end. And if it's disputed in January and the election gets sent to the House of Representatives, because at this point we have dueling electors from all of the contested states. So that would be Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, Nevada, Arizona, and surprisingly, New Mexico, uh, all seven of those states have sent dueling electors. And what that means is the George, uh, the secretary of state slash governor sent electors for one candidate, but the legislatures have sent uh, electors for a, a different candidate. Now, as far as I know, all of the pro-Trump electors in those states came from the legislatures and the pro-Biden electors came from the secretaries of state and the governors. Which means that if it, if it gets brought to the Supreme Court, and if the Supreme Court takes it up, 
they're probably going to rule in favor of the Trump electors because of the Constitution, which gives the legislatures that power. But that could just flip the election straight to Trump or landslide victory. But if it doesn't and it just gets disputed, it's going to go to the House of Representatives. But that does not mean that the people in the House are going to vote on it. It means that each state will vote on who their president is, who the president's going to be. Each state only gets one vote in, I believe it is House delegation. So consider that there are 31 state legislatures held by Republicans and only 19 state legislatures held by Democrats. The and again, the legislatures get to choose who their state sends that one person to vote for. The Republicans could win in a 31 to 19 sweep if it goes to House delegation, which would make Trump the president and he would get inaugurated on January 20th. We could be seeing a lot more of Trump in the years to come, uh, especially if he doesn't concede. And that's the United States. Now we're going to cross the pond to the European Union. Now, the EU is currently seeking to restrict the power of U.S. big tech companies, potentially demanding up to a 10% turnover while increasing tensions with the United States. Uh, Over 3,000 refugees in Bosnia face winter with no shelter, and the EU has urged Bosnia to shelter them better. The EU is also urging China to release... Li Yuhan, along with other human rights activists, a request that the Chinese are probably going to ignore. The EU has enacted a travel ban on Britain. Uh, No flights to or from the island. Um, What can I really say? Uh, I have... Basically, I'm going to explain why I do not believe the EU is a great power. Now, the constituent member states of the EU, like Germany, France, and Britain, for now, um, are great powers. I would consider them great powers. I don't believe the EU is, and I'll let me explain that. The EU is pretty slow-moving and ineffective on its foreign policy. Uh... They don't really address the issues that matter, like, say, Turkey threatening to flood them with migrants. Uh, Instead of addressing that, they would choose to sanction Belarus, who has uh, at times expressed a willingness to join the EU. So when you consider that, it doesn't seem like they'd be very effective on their foreign policy. And they're only slightly better uh, in getting what they want on domestic policy, but that usually only comes in the form of imposing restrictions, more restrictions, on itself uh, by imposing those restrictions on the select member states, like when it was trying to ignore the veto of Poland and Hungary, or when it tried to demand that every member state accept a certain number of migrants, or just the general trade barriers between them and the non-Schengen zone. Uh, so basically, the tariffs that they've been negotiating with the British over for a while now, they're really good at imposing restrictions on themselves, and that's as far as they can really get on domestic policy. 
uh, that and free movement of people and money within the European, the Eurozone. Um, I don't really see, given that, I don't see them as a great power because they can't get what they want. They can impose restrictions on themselves, but they can't lift themselves up. They can't seem to position themselves in any real challenge to them in a way that suits them. Like, again, Turkey. It, the individual member states of the European Union had to stand up to Turkey by themselves. Uh, Greece, in particular, kept trying to get the EU to help them, but the EU refuses to address the Turkish question. And that basically left Greece and Cyprus uh, out in the cold uh, for France to put a blanket on them. Because it was only those two that expressed any interest whatsoever in addressing Turkey's assertiveness in the eastern Mediterranean. So that's where I come from. That's the point of view I come from when I say that individual member states of the EU are great powers. Like France, who single-handedly basically stood up to the Turks by sending their navy to the eastern Med and forced Turkey to back down or temporarily back away. But the EU didn't tell them to do that. They didn't say, send over your navy. They didn't say, we're going to uh, have a solidarity in our opposition to Turkey. They did nothing. And it was up to the individual member states to look out for their own interests. And only certain members have the capacity to do that, like France and Germany and Britain, for now. So... Understand that when we look at the EU moving forward, uh, or when I talk about the EU moving forward, I don't know necessarily where you might stand on this, but that's where I stand on it. The individual member states of the EU can be great powers, but the EU itself, um, at least for now, can't seem to quite cut it. Uh, so that's the EU. Uh We'll be seeing how they fare with their perpetual secession crisis, uh, especially after December, when the Brits will finally be free. They'll finally get their independence. And whenever they do recover economically, assuming that they take a major hit economically, because everybody's kind of in the gutter right now due to the lockdowns, not the pandemic, the lockdowns. But whenever they do recover... Uh, other countries will look at them, other countries in the EU will look at them and be, oh, they're fine. Maybe we should leave the EU too. So that's the perpetual secession crisis that the EU will face moving forward in a nutshell. But now, while we're still talking about Europe, we're going to get to Hungary and their constitutional amendment. Specifically, their Ninth Amendment, which, uh, for them, their Ninth Amendment. Uh, every country who has a constitution has their own amendments, but Hungary's Ninth Amendment uh, was passed with 134 votes in favor, 45 against, and 5 abstaining. And what the constitutional amendment uh, did was a number of things regarding the family unit. So, it defines a family in Hungary... Um, it protects a child's right 
to identify with their gender at birth. It, it states that they have a right to an upbringing based on Hungary's constitutional identity and Christian culture, uh, and that Hungary protects the institution of marriage as the community of life or family formed on the basis of the voluntary decision as the foundation of the survival of the nation. The basis of the family relationship is marriage and or the parent-child relationship. Uh, and then it goes on to state that a mother is a woman and the father is a man. And that's how it defines a family. And they were also looking at banning uh, same-sex couples from being able to adopt children. Because at that point, it goes against their constitution. So... And if you think that that's extreme, it originally read that Hungary shall protect the institution of marriage as the union of a man and a woman established by voluntary decision and the family as the basis of the survival of the nation. Family ties shall be based on marriage and or the relationship between parents and children. So this caught my attention because we've been we've been bringing up Hungary for the past couple of weeks and I brought up their effort to recover their fertility rate in the relative na the relative power of nations and I've basically since then been referring to them as a potential mid-century power because if they can recover their demographics before the people around them well they'll have an advantage and their power relative to their neighbors will be greater so I saw this and for me and others paying attention to Hungary, it was just the continuation of what they had already been doing. And you can see, uh, they were the people who wrote this were probably having a lot of fun uh, using the language of right to identify with their gender at birth, um, uh, some sort of deliberate antagonization of the transgender crowd, where they would say that they have a right to identify with the gender of their choice. And this stands in stark contrast to that while using the same language, probably as a jab at them. But what really caught my attention um, was, one, the fact that it's being enshrined into their constitution moving forward. So it's not just legislation anymore. It's the constitution now. But the language, specifically... Um, the Hungary protects the institution of marriage as the community of life and or family formed on the basis of the voluntary decision as the foundation of the survival of the nation. That's what caught my attention. Because let's, uh, how do I put it? If you run out of people, you don't have a nation. If the people who live in your nation... Uh, if you are an, a nation based on ethnicity, like many countries in the old world, so that would be Europe, Asia, and Africa. If you are a nation based off of, that is founded on an eth a particular ethnicity, and that ethnicity becomes a minority in their own country, well, it's not their country anymore. Now, it's a little bit different for these settler societies like America, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, and to a degree, Brazil and kind of Mexico. They, they kind of became their own ethnicity, uh, a combination of the natives and the Spanish. 
but for these nations who they're founded on a particular ethnicity, if that ethnicity is no longer the majority, it then that's not the same country anymore. So to say that this is the foundation of the survival of the nation really spells out where Hungarian politics stand on this issue, uh, particularly in recognizing the threat that the low fertility rate that they had uh, posed to their country, especially during a time when uh, allowing millions of uh, undocumented migrants to come into your country was encouraged and is viewed as the good thing to do, uh, unrestrictedly a good thing to do. So, to see that, you kind of, it makes sense for Hungary, but uh, when I saw that the whole survival of the nation thing, I figured Hungary is doing this early. They're taking steps to recover their demography early, and they are already using language like this. So what do you think that means for countries that maybe get the message a bit late? You know, what does that mean for them? How, how extreme is their rhetoric going to be? How extreme are their actions and policies going to be when they start trying to effectively get their populations to breed like rabbits to recover their demographies? So that there are more young people than there are old instead of having more old people than there are young. Because Hungary is early. And they're already at this, this point where they're taking these drastic actions um, for the survival of their nation. So what do you think happens when, say, France or Germany uh, catch on to the danger of an inverted demography and what that poses to their nation. Because those two are ethnic-based nations. Now, Germany has a bit of a history with that, but they are. They're based off the ethnicity. Ethnic French, ethnic Germanic people. What happens when they start down their path of rapid, or, or an attempt at rapid demographic recovery? How extreme were they going to be? And so that was basically on my mind when I saw this. And who knows? Uh, maybe they just won't, and they'll have to wait for the natural recovery. I outlined that natural recovery in the last episode. Basically, people who are... Uh, groups of people who are above the replacement rate with regards to fertility will slowly but surely outnumber the people who aren't. But it's going to take a while to get there, like decades. But for more on that, just go on the last episode. But I, I thought it was interesting and could be hard, a very strong foreshadowing of what we could be seeing in the future, especially considering the unofficial precedent rule. You see, right now the countries are ridiculing Hungary. Uh just like they ridiculed Hungary on its border policy, where they built a fence to keep migrants from coming in Hungary. And then, later on down the line, those same countries and same people were applauding Greece when they put up a barricade on their border with Turkey. 
when Turkey tried to send migrants into Europe. So, it, whenever the that un that unofficial precedent rule, because now the precedent has been set by Hungary, they're going through the ridicule phase right now. But what happens when we get to the you know, okay, you were right phase, and we're gonna do this too. Who knows? I thought it was interesting, but uh, we're gonna talk about Nepal next, along with China and India. All right, we'll be back in just a moment. All right, let's talk Nepal. So on Sunday, li- literally yesterday, at the time of I'm recording this. Don't know when you're listening, but Sunday, the 20th of December, K.P. Sharma Ali dissolved the Nepali parliament. Uh, the Supreme Court, uh, the, the, that dissolution of their parliament has caused a massive tsunami, tidal wave, storm surge of um, of issues within the country. Uh, all hell is breaking loose there politically for now uh oh my goodness if they were to break into a civil war we could have the first proxy war uh we'll get into that later but uh on sunday the prime minister of nepal dissolved parliament now a supreme court spokesman this is the supreme court of nepal uh bad badrak uh, badrakali there we go but the Supreme Court spokesman, Bajakali, uh, he stated that the three petitions against the dissolution are, were being registered. So it's going to take a little bit of time for them to make their way to the Supreme Court of Nepal. The Nepal Constitution does not give the Prime Minister the ability to dissolve Parliament, according to one lawyer. Uh, and many people, the people who don't don't like the Prime Minister are calling it a constitutional coup. Uh, the Nepali president, not the prime minister, the president, has set new election dates on April 30th and May 10th uh, of 2021. Uh, the supporters of the prime minister say that democracy is the best way to solve the crisis, i.e. a new vote. And mm, this is important and kind of huge, especially if it spills out beyond the realm of just politics and people start shooting each other because Nepal is caught between two giants. If you look on the map, you'll see India and China. And then if you zoom into that tiny space between them, you'll see Bhutan and Nepal. The Nepal has been under heavy influence by the Chinese right now with the Indians trying to uh, make up for lost time and lost influence in the country as well. Now, Nepal, the Nepali Communist Party uh, openly denounced India for doing this while saying nothing about the Chinese. I, I wonder why. <laughs> but the Nepali Communist Party actually did call for their the prime minister who was a part of the party to step down. Um... So, literally, it's a mess. It's a mess in Nepal. And it has the potential to spill out into something bigger. Uh, Proxy war. We could be seeing a proxy war in the making. Uh, 
because uh, elections are sensitive issues for countries that hold them. I speak from experience here in America. But should this not, whether or not this is resolved peacefully, um, is irrelevant because the Indians and Chinese are not going to stop jostling for influence in Nepal. Now, neither China nor India have publicly commented on the crisis emerging in Nepal, but if we're going to keep it a buck fifty, both of them are undoubtedly making moves behind the scenes to secure and gain influence while sabotaging the other. And that's while people are still using words and the rule of law to solve their problems, uh, if people start using something more akin to a boomstick to start solving their problems, uh, we could see a proxy war, the first proxy war of the new Cold War, and maybe maybe then all the so-called experts will be on the same page that I'm on, that we are on, and we will have bragging rights, all 26 of us. But, uh... <laughs> But yes, um, we could really be seeing a new proxy war emerging between the Chinese and the Indians, and I don't mean political, I mean shooting war. Because again, elections are sensitive issues. Now, speaking of China and India, the Chinese are currently building a new capital city. Uh, they call it Jiang'an. And now it's going to be built in a rural region to the southwest of Beijing. Uh, the city is already under construction as we speak. I do believe the massive train station that they that it's basically going to be the central hub of the city is already completed. Now they'll still have to lay down the track. It'll probably be high speed rail because it's the coast, um, and it's close enough. Uh, to Beijing that it can in it can interface and integrate with the Beijing International Airport so it do, you don't need to build a new one uh, for the city but it's going to be huge like massive huge now we do know about the ghost cities in China uh, the many of them but this one is probably going to be different if for no reason other than the fact that the government of China is probably going to force people to move there so that it doesn't fail <laughs> but uh, it aims to be three times bigger in land area than New York City uh, in the midterm phase of the city's development so it's probably going to be even larger when it's actually finished we could be looking at China's answer to Germania, uh, for those of you who know about the Nazi plans for winning World War II and how they wanted to build a new capital. Uh, we could be sitting Chi Chinese Germania. Uh, quite fitting for the authoritarian government, but we that's not to say that there won't be benefits for the people living there. Now, the city is meant to be huge. It aims to be environmentally sustainable, the most environmentally sustainable city in China, and this is largely to avoid, in my opinion, it's largely to avoid the existing pollution issues in Beijing and Tianjin, which is a major port city, 
to the southeast of Beijing. So it's the three cities would form a bit of a triangle, assuming that their metro areas just don't start overlapping. Uh, if you look um if you look at the Earth at night and you go to the United States, like imagine the east coast of the United States where the lights are just constantly interlocking. It could be like that with this city that's meant to be ridiculously huge. Uh, so we could be seeing a mega city that integrates with two other big cities to become a super duper mega city. Now, the budget for the construction is currently hovering around 170 to 300 billion. Uh, convert converted the Chinese currency to U.S. dollars. It'd be 170 to 300 billion USD. Uh, I'd imagine. I'd imagine a year. And around half of that is for ultra-modern infrastructure, planned high-speed rail connections to Beijing and Tianjin. So, and the train station is already completed at this point, so they're probably making the infrastructure to link up the train systems as we speak. Now, President, I keep saying now, now, President Xi Jinping wants the project to be an economic model for China moving forward. Uh, and he wants a strong emphasis on socialism and the power of the state rather than capitalism and market forces. Now, this is, is going to stand in stark contract to the United States. Uh, and might work, might not. Socialism doesn't exactly have the best history. But... Uh, who knows? Maybe with enough throughput, they can make it work into something great. Now, will they? Will it resolve the animosity between the coastal Chinese and the interior Chinese? Probably not. Not too much, anyway. Jiang'an is technically an inland city, but it's gonna function as though it wasn't because it's gonna be linked up with Tianjin, which is a port city. So there's that. But um yeah, it's a pretty interesting project, especially that China's undertaking this combined with the Belt and Road Initiative. Um it's gonna be huge. And I personally can't wait to see it. It's gonna take more than a couple years to finish, likely. But yeah, who knows? They it's starting something new. There's probably gonna be people who are gonna majorly benefit from the construction of it. And I mean, like, regular people uh, who are going to majorly construction, majorly construction, majorly benefit from the construction and the creation of new jobs and the whole lot that's associated with building something new. So, lots of construction uh, for infrastructure. Probably going to have some sort of industrial plant within the city. Uh, considering that commercial plant would likely stay in Tianjin, but the Chinese have expressed that they want to relocate many of their major um, research facilities and other headquarters for certain industry and economic uh, engines to the city to really give a strong reason for people to go there for opportunity. And it makes sense if you want the city to actually succeed. So that's what China's up to. Uh, meanwhile, India, we're going to 
kind of takes a bit of a step back from all the massive, big, glim, glam of the Chinese uh, to India's underdog position in this emerging geopolitical showdown with the Chinese that they're going to be locked into uh, if for no reason other than the fact that the Chinese won't let them just go be isolationist. But India uh, recently had a virtual summit. They had a virtual summit with Vietnam. Now, India has been deepening its ties with Vietnam. Uh, They're seeking a long-term strategic partnership. And Narendra Modi, he's the Prime Minister of India, uh, he says that Vietnam is an important pillar of the Act East policy uh, and for India's Indo-Pacific vision. Now, the Act East policy is the successor to the previous Look East policy. Uh, Look East started in 1991 and was meant to create economic and strategic relationships with countries in Southeast Asia uh, in order to boost India's position in the region and to counter the influence of China. Naturally, Vietnam would be an important piece as they sit along the coastline of Indochina. And they have a really long coastline, and they're right next to China. And India could be looking at its own domino theory, kind of like how America thought that if Vietnam fell to communism, uh, other nations in Southeast Asia would fall to communism. But for India, it would be more like if Vietnam fell to Chinese influence, other nations in Southeast India, Southeast India, Southeast Asia would fall to Chinese influence. So, not necessarily drawing a direct parallel, but that's a fun thing to envision it as, you know, from, you know, the perspective of an American. But it makes sense that they would want to maintain strong ties with Vietnam uh, and not be boxed in by the Chinese, who have made it clear that they want to box them in. Now, India's efforts uh, with this, uh, particularly their expansion of the Look East policy, are probably meant to, well, we know what it's meant to do, but whether or not it succeeds is going to be based entirely on their diplomacy. Now, Act East uh, is, again, an improvement and successor to Look East, and it applies to East Asia as well as Southeast Asia. And we can see the result of this, a key result, being the strategic alliance with Japan that currently has 10 years to run. India's efforts uh, are mostly successful on the geopolitical side, not so much the economic. They're able to get geopolitical agreements done, but they can't seem to entice their neighbors into economic ties. Um, Like, again, they wanted a long-term strategic partnership with Vietnam, because Vietnam is in a strategic location. And this showdown with China is going to be long-term and geostrategic in nature. So it makes sense that they would want that. Uh, And it makes sense that they would have a strategic partnership with Japan. Because effectively, India, Vietnam, Japan, and de facto Taiwan, kind of by default, uh, that boxes China in. You know, Uh, 
it's a counter encirclement. They both imagine imagine two people and they're holding a rope that's wrapped around the other guy's neck. And every time one guy pulls, the other guy pulls it too. So the do- a double noose is effectively what they've gained through stronger ties with Vietnam and the military pact with Japan. They're building a, the counter noose. They're, they have a noose around their neck and they're tying a noose around China right now. So, and you know, when you think about it that way, it just it just makes geopolitics an even more interesting animal than it already is. But China seems to get the opposite, like literally inverted. They seem to succeed on the economic angle when they try to establish ties with another nation. They succeed in getting trade deals. They succeed in integrating their economies and making other countries dependent on trade with China. But they fail when it comes to their geopolitical ambitions. Uh, For instance, there's the RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, that massive trade deal with China and basically East Asia and all of Southeast Asia, along with Oceania, uh, the major nations of Oceania, which would be Australia and New Zealand. So correction from one of my last episodes where I said that Australia and New Zealand weren't a part of it, they are. They are a part of that massive trade deal. Uh, $23 trillion, I believe, is the total trade volume or the economies. So it, it's huge. It's ridiculously large, just like everything the Chinese have been doing lately. But they succeed, outstandingly so, when it comes to trade and economy and getting deals on the economic side. The Chinese succeed on economics, but they fail on getting what they want geopolitically. So they have to use the econ- they have to use their superior economy to force their way in geostrategically, and they have to do it by themselves. Uh, Australia and New Zealand, uh, being a recent example of how they can't seem to get what they want geopolitically out of Australia, so. They're putting an embargo on Australia. They started with their raw materials, and now the trade war between them and Australia has expanded to Australian barley. And there's not too much the Australians can do about it. They're more dependent on China. Uh, They need that Chinese economy. They need that Beijing money. And this trade war between a massively superior economy to this Australian economy is uh, naturally hurting Australia disproportionately more than it's hurting China. Uh, Unlike the US-China trade war where it was kind of roughly equal and effectively just served to decouple the United States more and more from China, Australia is getting, they're getting mollywhopped by this, uh, they're not backing down. So even though the Chinese have outsized economic influence over Australia by basically buying up all of their raw materials, even when they impose embargoes and trade restrictions on them, 
they can't get what they want geostrategically. And that's the theme that we've noticed uh, looking at China and what they've wanted to do in their region, how they get these strong economic links between them and other countries, but then those countries resist them geopolitically. Uh, Vietnam, the Philippines, Japan, Australia, uh, Bangladesh. Well, not, not actually, no, not Bangladesh. They got what they wanted in Bangladesh. They got a friendly port. And we'll see where Nepal goes, but they can't seem to get what they want geostrategically, whereas India can get basically everything they want geostrategically, but they can't get the same for economic deals. And that's likely due to the Chinese being there. Why do business with India when and help them industrialize when you could do business with China, who already is, and could benefit you greater with their larger economy? So the nooses around the Indian neck is that of the Chinese economic stranglehold. And the noose around China's neck is the noose of the Indian strategic alliance being built around them. Uh, a double containment, basically. Now, I believe that the economics are probably going to be the stronger noose in the long term uh, moving forward. We'll see how India does economically moving forward. We'll see how China does economically moving forward because if China's a topic economy takes a hit uh, and they go into some massive recession, which they so far managed to avoid in 2020. At least that's what the official figures give us. Uh, if China starts doing poorly economically, they could lose their leverage. Uh, they could lose that leverage of their economy and which would that would leave them uh, economically weakened while strangled by India's geostrategic alliance around them. If China falters economically, India wins. If India does something to piss off its allies and they break ranks with India, well, then they're going to be surrounded by Chinese... Uh, they're going to be surrounded by people more aligned with the Chinese... And they're going to be forced, not necessarily into some sort of collapse like the Soviet Union, but rather forced into a bit of a retreat where they're going to have to hunker down on their own soil and they don't have any room to move. The Chinese can maneuver around them, but they can't maneuver around the Chinese. So the long term, I believe the Chinese are going to have the advantage because it's based on economy. We'll see what their demographics do to them economically, but... In the long term, I believe the Chinese, due to their economic angle, are going to prevail in their Cold War unless India does something radical. But in the short term, because recessions do happen, if China falters on its economy, India could win very quickly uh, just by putting China in a very, very uncomfortable position, especially as China is being very provocative with their military. Other countries don't want to be subjugated, so they'll look to India for protection, making India the regional power that they want to be. So, oh, that's a lot. That is a lot. Uh, you have India and China facing off. 
Pakistan seems to be a steadfast semi-ally of the Chinese. Again, the Chinese aren't necessarily getting what they want strategically out of Pakistan, but Pakistan is ideologically, pathologically, religiously opposed to everything Indian, so they're not they're not losing anything in Pakistan. Oh, we'll just say that much. Uh, we'll get into we'll be, we'll do the recap and the closing uh, after this break right here. So stay tuned. All right, we're back. Talked about a lot today. Did a nice little recap of all the great powers of t- of the day. Uh, why the EU isn't one of them, but they're the big members of the EU are, and how Hungary can break their way into the ranks of the great powers. And I think Turkey's all also on the way up. Now, uh, yeah, what, what what can you say? What can you say? Uh, China's going big, or they're going to go home. India isn't allowed to go home because China's there. So, the Ouroboros is another good good analogy for the situation between China and India, with China being closer to consuming India. But, uh, I think we're at this, we're at this moment in time where anything could happen, you know, anything can happen, and it could just upend everything we think we know, uh, particularly everything we think we know about the relative power of the current relative power of the countries that stand today. Uh, Turkey and their drone swarms, their kamikaze drone swarms, could potentially render uh, Russia's air defense system obsolete, and it kind of did. When Azerbaijan used them against Armenia, Russia did step in. We'll see what the response to that is going to be. Because Turkey, whenever they do rise, well, whenever their rise is recognized uh, and starts to get really get rolling, they're going to be a land power. Which means that they are going to be at odds with other land powers. And that's inevitably going to lead to a, a resuming the rivalry between them and Russia. Uh, but Turkey, uh, should they go back to their former heights of the of a new Ottoman Empire, they would have strong economy, very strong economy. They could break into the trillion trillion GDP range, uh, a a very exclusive club that Russia itself is only just barely in. But China, meanwhile, is a massive massive power in the east and the only real challenge to them is the fading challenge that is the u.s and it's fading because the u.s doesn't want to be there (laughs) america's like a kid that wants to go home but aside from america who is actively going home the only real challenge to china is i was about to say turkey is is india and India, if they play their cards right, they can win. They can stalemate the Chi- whether or not they'll be able to stalemate the Chinese for uh, a century or five decades, like our Cold War went on for five, almost five. We had we had forty five years between America and the Soviets. Will the India China Cold War last longer? Probably. 
you know, they've been at each other's throats since they discovered one another. So I don't imagine now being any different. Although the forces at play are a little bit different. But uh, this is going to be far more long term than anything that America and the Soviets could have dreamed of. Because, well, America at any moment could have gone home. That's the key difference between that Cold War. America could have gone home. Uh, change of administration. America says, we're done. We've done what we wanted. We go home. Neither India nor China has that option. Now, in the Cold War between America and Russia, Russia didn't really have that option either, but America did. And is now choosing to use that option in the face of a quote-unquote Cold War 2.0 between America and China. Back in the early 20-teens, it was between America and Russia. World War III, World War III was all the rage. But America's going home, and they have the option. Neither India nor China has that option, and they're stuck with each other, and they hate each other. India and Pakistan don't have the option of going home. They're right next to each other. They're stuck with each other. They're going to be there for the rest of their natural lives. So, I guess the battle will be, can India play its cards right uh, within its region? Because it does have a more consolidated hand where the Chinese are exerting influence in far-flung places around the world. Can India use the superior consolidation of what it has, although less than the Chinese, uh, can they gain like a local superiority and use that against China to win? Or will China go through some sort of uh, rapid reconsolidation of their influence to deal with the Indians sometime later on? I'd imagine whenever Belt and Road makes its way to the Middle East and they can import oil by land from the natural gas pipelines that they have with Russia and rail link between them and Kazakhstan and Iran and maybe even th uh, through Russia go through the Caucasus to Azerbaijan and maybe even into the Middle East proper because I don't imagine any railroad going between Arabia, Iraq, and Iran is going to go unsabotaged. And if the Chinese are able to establish good land links to the countries it needs. It can get lots of raw materials from Russia. The Russians will be more than happy to sell it to them. A, the gas station of the Middle East, the Middle Easterners, Iran in particular, will be more than happy to sell natural gas and Russia, and Russia, and oil to the Chinese. India is going to be reliant on sea lanes because Pakistan is there. Pakistan and China block India from any land route to the Middle East. So, in any event where the Indians would need oil, it's gonna come by sea. So, if the Chinese have friendly ports in Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, they can easily cut off, well, they could try to cut off India's supply, or they can move troops. They can move troops and just redirect it or just buy it up so China does 
in my opinion, have the long-term advantage over India. But India, if it plays its cards right, does have a shot. America is in a bit of a... America's, for lack of a better term, offline right now. And we'll see if the orange man can pull off the radical upset victory that uh, he's been promising since um, November 3rd. And we'll see how Hungary's neighbors, uh, the EU, respond to Hungary's rise later on in the century. I do believe they'll be rising, if just due to the relative difference in the power between them and their neighbors. I, we're, we're seeing a lot of more long-term trends in motion. Uh, one trend being the consolidation of military industries around the world, uh, Taiwan and Turkey uh, being key notable figures in that, because Taiwan wants to be able to defend itself from China without the United States, and Turkey wants to be able to not have to worry about who's going to sanction their military industry. So I I imagine that's going to continue around the world, and... There will be people, countries that still sell weapons, but the dependency on weapons exports I see going down for the major players, the future great powers and the would-be great powers, I imagine, their dependency is going to go down. And that's probably going to be something to look out for uh, with regards to who the great powers are going to be. Because if you produce your own weapons, you don't have to worry about running out. Well... You don't have to worry about not running out very, very quickly anyway. But that being said, uh, that is about it for today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. And the world is changing. But we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I have been your host, Sean Wade. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So until we meet again next Monday, servus.